0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're kicking off our end-of-year fundraising drive with a special discount offer from our partner, Heritage Foods USA, an online farm-to-table butcher shop specializing in heritage-breed antibiotic-free meats. Donate to Heritage Radio Network before Sunday, December 4th at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and we'll send you an exclusive discount code for 10% off all Heritage Foods products. Help ensure another year of great food radio, get 10% off delicious and sustainably produced meat, and support small family farms all in one shot. How's that for a holiday miracle? Head to heritageradionetwork.org donate by Sunday, December 4th to make your contribution.
2: Hi. This is Greg Bresnitz, one-half the host of Snacky Tunes. We have had the honor of being nominated by Taste Awards for Best Radio Show and Best Podcast. Please head to bit.do backslash stvote in order to vote for Snacky Tunes and other food favorites. Once again, that's bit.do backslash stvote. And a big congratulations to Heritage Radio Network for being nominated into the Hall of Fame. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it.
3: Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi.
4: And I'm Mary Izette.
3: From Famanibody. Famanibody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
1: If you like this program, visit Network.org for thousands more.
4: We talk about food. Talk about music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tune. from here Hoping you're Hoping you just Come to Holes in the bridge Down when some sun Drift
2: To Snacky Tunes, I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz, sitting in the beautiful standard on West Hollywood. Uh, I mean, it's probably beautiful outside the conference yeah, conference wall.
1: Definitely, there's a pool. Uh, w-
2: Chef, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for having me. Um, so, are uh, you got you grew up in your life on California?
1: Uh, born in Hawaii, but I grew up in California Okay, yeah. born in Hawaii
2: When did you move in?
1: I was about four so Four Yeah, I grew up in California
2: So for for everything, but maybe the very, very early part of your memories Yeah,
1: yeah, Bay Area
2: Bay Area um, What was it like to grow up in California? Um, parents cook, grandmother cook, family cooks? Mm,
1: I mean, my parents cooked, but it wasn't anything that I really paid attention to uh, My mom's from Mexico, so I didn't see their family very often um, and then my dad's family is from the East Coast. So it was really like my parents my sister. That was the majority of family for me. And we would have dinner together. But, you know, it was nothing extensive. And at the time, you know, it was certainly nothing that I really appreciated, really.
2: It's funny when, I mean, I think it's probably now. I don't i don't know any kid who isn't, like, at least aware of food in some sort of cultural setting. But a lot of people our age were, like, you know, having food at home, having a good cooked meal, anything like that didn't even register
1: no it was just not really something that I paid attention to I was mostly like I would eat fast food I would go with my friends I was so busy doing sports that it was just like never never even anything that I thought about
2: I remember when I started working at a pizza place in high school I started just eating just like you know pizza and things like that and giving up my mom's home-cooked meals which were like completely awesome and I know that respect and yeah. like go back in time be like hey you should have eating at home, a little bit more. Yeah,
1: or said thank you, or like yeah, some kind of appreciation. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, So when did when did you start to think about food as something that you might want to pursue?
1: I was 21, and I just like kind of started cooking for myself Uh in college, and I didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to do. I studied philosophy and international affairs, and it was you know, just kind of experimenting and Mm -hmm. watching food TV and reading cookbooks and kind of like slowly dipping a toe. in.
2: Was there a catalyst or was it just like, I got to start cooking for myself because...
1: Yeah, I was just eating garbage and I was getting kind of sick and I was having a stomach aches. So it's really just like that was the first step towards getting me into cooking. And then I started to learn more about sustainable agriculture. And um, I learned about, you know, chefs supporting farmers markets and local growers and kind of the impact that they were having on health and their local economies. And so... You know, the more I learned about that, the more interested I got in the industry as a whole.
2: I mean, that's pretty awesome because you're a young guy and you've had some pretty automatic aids And to have gone from at 21 just even to sort of getting in the kitchen for yourself for the first time in like a conscious way to where you go, it's not a long time.
1: I think kind of if you really look at like the progression of a lot of chefs, I think that like especially the people who, you know, may have been in the industry sure. for – 10 plus years or whatever um, you know a lot of them were kind of dabbling at first or they would like work in fast food or they would work in a restaurant and then maybe they'd play music or they'd go in and out but when I started cooking you know it was really just like at that with the intent of becoming a chef and owning a restaurant so it was like with that level of dedication and time spent um, you know I ended up getting you know I think as much experience as a lot of other cooks, just like really working, working in the kinds of restaurants that I was working in, uh, cooking all the time on my days off for friends, for family, it was really, you know, I pushed myself really as hard as I could as a young cook, you know, I was coming in early, staying late, going to Europe, not getting paid, you know, staging on days off, so... So the
2: classic, like, the very much like the classic, yes, Jeff, by the bootstraps.
1: Yes, I started as a prep cook, as a dishwasher... Um, I worked at this place in Berkeley, Laleem. That was, like, my first mm-hmm. actual job. But, um, you know, the first, like, real hardcore restaurant I worked in was Opening Flower and Water in God,
2: San Francisco. Yeah. That restaurant is bang up.
1: Yeah, it was just, like, it was, you know, the economy had just started to sing. So this 2008... 2009? It was two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, yeah, sure. right around there.
2: And when well, flour and water was about what people could afford. It yeah. was the right
1: price point. It was like you know yeah. the upper edge of what people are willing to spend. It was in a neighborhood that really had nothing in it at that
2: point. But it's awesome because when you drive by, like right like right before they open, there's always a line.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah. And when, you know, we Did, I think, like 140 covers on our first night and we never did less. Um.
2: I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, San Francisco is is such a dichotomy in so many ways of just like high-end restaurants but also this like sort of like grassroots, by the bootstraps, like populist type of uh, economy and people. And, like, finding the restaurants that can find that balance yeah. is completely awesome. I think Flower and Water is one of those places. Yeah, I
1: think it mirrors Paris a lot in that, like, mm-hmm. you can have an ambitious neighborhood restaurant that can grab, you know, one Michelin or something like that. And it can kind of, you know, on, in its own way become a destination. And that's definitely what Flower and Water was able to capture. You know, the food was great, but it was just as much about the vibe and the service and the music and the decor and the plateware. And it was just, like, a very unified experience to go and eat
2: there yeah and so from there where did you go
1: um from flour and water I went to France
2: okay and I how, worked, how was that was that awesome it was
1: amazing I worked at a one star on a farm on a wildlife preserve in the southwest
2: that is like the ideal like cut to young chef in per, you know yeah, France countryside. I mean, definitely
1: we were getting vegetables cut before every service herbs were cut before every service you know most of the vegetables never saw a refrigerator that went straight from farm to into the restaurant onto the plate um and it was just like a pretty magical experience. Now They grew rice, they pressed olive oil, everything was done on They grew rice? It. They grew rice, yeah. So it's in uh, this part of France called the Camargue, and it's like coastal wetlands, the mouth of the Rhone River. Okay. And, um, so they grow this heirloom red rice.
2: Wow. I don't think I've ever had...
1: Yeah. It's really like a special. It's like super nutty. It's very mm. flavorful. It's, you know, kind of like wild rice, but... Not quite. They actually have started importing it, so you'll see it in Whole Foods every once in a while, the Kamarag Okay.
2: Riffs, yeah. keep, keep Keep my eye on that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so then, this is getting to be like, what, 2010, 2011, and when does the bug, I guess not just the bug, but when do you feel like, I'm going to open something, or Like, and when does the idea of a restaurant that you want to open start to start coalescing?
1: Uh, that kind of started actually, like, even from day one, really, just kind of thinking mm. about... What I would do, what kind of food it would be, and you know, I was writing recipes and dishes down in notebooks since you know my first day of work. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, there was really like a, a lot of intent behind you know where I was going to work, how I was going to work, what I wanted to do. Sure. Um,
2: Which but- is pretty awesome to be like. I'm gonna write my first book. Yeah, and but I'm gonna start from the moment I start putting a pen to paper. Totally, uh, I'm gonna just keep in the best ideas.
1: Yeah, and it was just you know like throw as much at the wall as you can, see what sticks. Try to develop a style. Mm -hmm. Try to think about what a style would look like, and you know work for really great talented people. Push yourself. You know learn. You know learn techniques. Learn you know what it takes to actually do it, and then kind of go from there.
2: So when you start to think about the restaurant that would become Alma, like what like people forget now it's easy to hear four years, almost five years later, of like what downtown LA really was.
1: Yeah, so Alma, the original was opened on Broadway before anything was there. So we were between a hostess club and a pot dispensary. Um, you know, there was one apartment building that Mm -hmm. was nearby on the block, but beyond that, it was like, basically that part of downtown was more or less, you know, deserted at night. Mm -hmm. So we were the only like really legitimate business on that side of downtown for the first like year plus.
2: And I remember being in New York hearing about a restaurant of any elk opening in downtown and being like, I don't understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a shock to everybody that we told about it, but The space was great, and it was all that we could afford, to be honest.
2: I mean, was it... I mean, for those who were not familiar with it, what was the approach to the cuisine?
1: I mean, it's the same approach that we take now, but it's California, coastal California. As much as we can get, either wild or from the farmer's markets, everything is uh, sustainable. All our meat was pasture-raised. All the fish was, you know, line-caught sustainable. But it was really just kind of light and you know, focused on what was growing when and where and what kind of ingredients were indigenous to Southern California that would give it that kind of, uh, rooted to, to where we are.
2: And did you find yourself pulling from every part of your, what was about f- five years, six years yeah. of culinary cooking?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just like the first, you know, when you're starting out as a chef, a lot of the food that you're going to cook is pretty derivative. So it'll be variations on stuff you've done sure. before or it'll be based on something you read in a cookbook or it might be based on something a friend tells you about or you see on social media. And so, you know, it'd be variations on things and every once in a while we would get something kind of um, like organic and that was like, felt like something different.
2: I mean, and to say that you guys eventually landed on the right mix of something different, I mean, out of the gate, it was celebrated by not just locals, but nationally, internationally is one of the best in America. It was
1: definitely a mixed reception. I think that like it was that we had supporters and we definitely like received, you know, very high profile press. But, you know, I think that locally we were always a bit of an outcast um, and we were always, you know, kind of the, the outsider, for lack of a better word, in the restaurant industry in L.A. And I think that... Um, was a location? I, honestly, like i thought about it forever, and there's nothing that I can really put a finger on. I think it was, you know, we kind of came out of nowhere. We sure. weren't from here. I didn't work in L.A. restaurants. Um, you know, we didn't really ask for permission for what we were doing. So I think that you know people were a little bit wary of the label. You know, we we started to get labeled as like you know a standard bearer for Los Angeles, and I think that there were a lot of very hardworking people who put in a lot of time here. Um... And I think that, you know, that kind of rubbed some people the wrong way.
2: Sure. Uh, well, listen, we're going to take a quick musical break. Come back, talk about the Alma 1.1 and then Alma 2.0 and all the awesome things you're doing here at The Standard and the current LA dining scene and everything that's going on that's pretty awesome. Sounds good. All right, we gonna have a quick musical break. Live music recorded previously on Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
3: tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sourchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin, make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Green County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sourchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru surchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com.
2: Uh, Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're uh, here with Ari of Alma. And, um, you know, I have to say I had a very good meal when I was at Alma uh, in the original location. Um, Definitely a forward-thinking restaurant.
1: Yeah, you know, that was not... Our intention was never to be modern or different or whatever. I think it was just we... Really wanted to express what we felt like were the highlights of like the produce and the cultural diversity and you know everything that made southern that makes Southern California so special yeah um, so you know it's like and, and just by virtue of my training in the restaurants that I worked in you know there were more modern techniques there were more idiosyncratic flavor profiles that went together but you know our intention was never to be different or to you know be avant garde.
2: Sure. Sure. Now, I mean, obviously, amazing accolades both to yourself and the restaurant, but, you know, anyone who's trying to run a restaurant can tell you that even with the best in the world, it's, it's, it's a tough business.
1: Well, I mean, we had a different problem is that we were, you know, completely underfinanced. And this is like you get into the nitty gritty of the restaurant business, but we opened Alma with no investors sure. illegally for $45,000. Sure. Um,
2: Which is a great story if you come out on the other side when you're like, we're these renegade like culinary pirates and things like that. But if it doesn't come on the side, then one day you, you open the books and go, shit.
1: Well, there's, you know, they're really, huh. in this economy, in a major city, you know, there is huh. no coming out the other side. It's just too expensive right. food, labor to run sure. a restaurant, especially where you're trying as best you can to take care of your staff, to pay them as much as you can to make sure it's above a living wage.
2: And you're not in a restaurant under the radar either. Um,
1: no, exactly. So there's a lot of attention. You know, we constantly, you know, our, you know, have to upgrade our silverware, our plateware, mm-hmm. our, you know, facilities. And, you know, we're trying to do that with our working capital without, you know, any backers behind us. And so we learn, we're basically learning on the fly. None of us have ever operated or run a business at that level before. So, you know, I think that, we, you know, unfortunately we were doomed to failure from day one. And it was, you know just a, just a absolutely mind-blowing that we made it as far as we did.
2: Now, saying that you were doomed to failure from day one, given the success that you had, when did, and it's never an every easy decision, but when did it start to of sink in that you're like, if we're going to want Alma to continue on, we're going to have to rethink the current iteration and have to make some major changes?
1: I mean, we were existential our entire time. Sure. There was at no point were we ever comfortable with the finances of the restaurant. Sure. At no point did we ever feel like you know, we were even going to make payroll, you know, we were, we were, you know, crossing our fingers and hoping that the bank account didn't, um, hit zero every pay period. So it was, you know, we were just fighting and we fought and we fought and we fought. And then there came a point where, um, you know, there were some situations that we came up against and it just wasn't possible, you know, to continue without you. We, we would have lost everything at that point. So it, you know, it became like, you know, how Let's time to lick our wounds Let's try to regroup. And I guess that that real decision was made um, probably the late spring, early summer before we closed. So last year.
2: So last year. Yeah. Um, was there any situation where you could have just, I mean, without having to completely revamp everything and go to like a completely different menu or approach or what you were doing that you could have saved the restaurant down there? Or did, did you get to a point where like it's not it's not worth saving for what we would have to do
1: it's not that it wasn't worth saving it was just that it wasn't it wasn't a sustainable business operation it was sure. too small it was you know our building as like homey and charming as it was it had enough electricity to support you know <laughs> the family of four to be honest like we couldn't plug in more than three or four appliances at the same time without shorting it like the lights would go out during service yeah we didn't have refrigeration you know the kind of you know our landlord wasn't as cooperative in terms of supporting building upgrades and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so you know outside of asking you know somebody for a million dollars to do what we needed to do we felt like you know it's it was time to kind of try to figure out what's next and and let this go to sleep
2: yeah i mean the you know, one of the beauties of America is this promise of, like, a second act. Yeah. You know, and it takes, I think it takes some foresight when you go, like, okay, my first, it's, let's drop that curtain, take an intermission. Um, what did you learn during that, that break? Or when did you start to think that, when did you know that, like, yes, this is done here, but we're not done?
1: Um, I mean, we, like Ashley, my business partner and I, we just loved the community around us. We loved our staff. We loved the people that were coming in to eat. We loved the farmers that we were working with. And so it was more just like we didn't want to stop. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't know what it was going to look like. We had no idea, you know, if we were going to be able to come back. But, we, you know, we wanted to try to figure out what a sustainable future was, you know, going to look like. And we had made so many you know mistakes running a business and learning about how to run a business on the fly that you know we felt like at least we had more of an understanding of the realities of the business side of things versus just like how to run a service and how to you know execute
2: yeah i mean so when you start looking at past and the mistakes and things like that and then you start looking forward as well it's a, in some ways it's like a freeing time
1: yeah, I mean, I, you know, I thought that I was going to be sad about it, but it was it was a relief that, you know, the fight was over. Um,
2: Sometimes you realize, like, there's more pain with the fight than with the actual problem.
1: Well, yeah, it wasn't... I think it was that we were trying to keep something alive that had run its course, and it was... it had just... that was the length of time that that was possible to do, and, you know... We would have loved to continue operating the way we were operating in a small environment. But, you know, it, it, we probably would have killed ourselves doing it. Just, you know, we, Ashley and I, we're both working over 100 hours a week for right. the entire run of the restaurant. And, you know, that's not a sustainable lifestyle for anybody. No,
2: no, it's not. So when did you start thinking about other options and when did the conversation with the standards start to happen?
1: Um, the f- first conversation with the Standard happened actually a couple weeks before we closed in October Um, and you know we had had a conversation with them actually a few years prior about the downtown location Mm -hmm. but you know nothing really came of it we weren't ready to take on a second project and I think that you know they were probably understandably a little bit wary about handing over a hotel operation to 26, 27 year olds at that time.
2: Of course, and to be honest, for those who are unfamiliar with what means to run a restaurant where you're doing dinner service or running a complete F&B program for a hotel, it's Two different approaches. Right.
1: It's you know, it's running one service versus, you know, where we're at now where our operations never close, it's twenty-four-seven, three sixty-five. You know, we always have to be staffed, prepped, and ready to cook food at you know at three thirty in the morning, at five thirty in the morning at all times.
2: And it's funny because in many ways it forces you to give up control because you can literally not be here yeah. for twenty-four hours. Which is again freeing in some ways because you're like, okay, I need to create a menu that my name's on it. My re- the restaurant name's on it, but I'm literally going to be asleep when it's being made.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, we had started that process towards the end of Alma too. Sure. Just with you know, I would miss services. You know, just because of you know some of the press we received. I, ha- I you know I was doing a lot of travel to support the restaurant, so you know there would be entire weeks of service that I would miss, and it really just goes back to. The culture that you create around the restaurant and giving people, you know, the ability to buy in and contribute and have creative say in what's going on so that, you know, it's not dependent on you sitting there making every single decision.
2: Yeah. So in a, you know, so with you guys coming over here and deciding to do it at the standard, you took the name with you as well. What was the decision behind that? And then what did you bring with you? And then what did you leave behind?
1: Well, I mean, the name... The name shifted subtly because it became Alma at the Standard because we became attached to something else. So there, sure. you know, were some legal reasons why it can't be called Alma Restaurant anymore. There's, you know, just kind of, and we felt like you know we wanted, you know, a fresh start with you know the company and mm-hmm. the way we were perceived. Um, And I guess, you know, what we left behind was a lot of the preciousness um, for better and for worse. You know, there was aspects of it that were really beautiful. Like we had these, you know, ceramics that were custom made for us that like kind of were, it fit the food very well. How the dishes ate, you know, how they looked. Um, And we kind of moved into an area where we were looking to evolve and grow and kind of, you know, not be quite as cute.
2: I mean, there are some things that you brought with you, though, and that's that dedication to sustainability, yeah. to sourcing and things like that, which is, you know, uh, always nice to have at a hotel, yeah. but not always necessary because of the volume and things like that. So what's your approach been to obviously bring in as much as you can that's sustainable and local and fresh, but running what is a, a, you know, a 24-hour operation, what some people might only just want... You know, an affordable cheeseburger and fries.
1: Right. I mean, we source... If it's on the plate, it's local. Um, it's from a farmer's market. It's from a local farmer. We simply don't. You know, we're, we're allergic to using big produce companies. We work with, you know, in terms of food, we work with tons of small farmers still our fish is coming from a company where we can, you know, I can ask them what boat it was caught on. Like we can trace the fish, even for something like the fish and chips. Like we know where the food is coming from for the, you know, the ground beef for the burger. You know, we work with our meat purveyor to source it from, you know, free range, grass fed. Um, So it's really important that we just design a menu that allows us to continue to source the way that we source, because, you know, one of the great things about, Being in a hotel is having the buying power of a hotel. So instead of, you know, working with one or two big companies, you know, we choose to take that money and distribute it through the local economy.
2: I mean, that's essentially what it is. I mean, you own your uh, very own local economy here with people. You have guests coming in, people coming in, and then seeing the restaurant not just always making that the main destination and things like that. Have you found in designing the menu, you know, what is on there now? From both, like, a room service, uh, in the restaurant, like, what are you designing for, knowing that you have this different uh, way that people are going to come to the restaurant? So,
1: I mean, there's the Alma um, restaurant at The Standard. We operate that uh, seven nights a week Mm -hmm. and for brunch on Sunday. And that is still, you know, very much influenced by the food that we were doing before, it's definitely evolved. It's not a tasting menu, but, you know, the use of herbs, the way we season, the use of broths, you know, the, you know, the majority of dishes are vegetable-based. Um, that's all still there. As for the other side of things, you know, it's like for room service, you know, you're thinking about who's eating room service. It's usually somebody who has just gotten off a plane, who's sure. exhausted, who's jet-lagged, and so you want to make sure that it's food that's hearty and filling, but, you know, is still, you know, our, our number one goal is clean food. So we want to make sure people still feel good after they eat the food. Um, and then also knowing that, like, that, you know, it can't, nobody wants to think about what they're eating in their room. So they want it to be good, they want it to be tasty, but they don't need to be challenged. Um,
2: right. Yeah. There, and uh, foams and more of the delicate stuff or anything that might be of, like, too hard of a technique to go from the kitchen to upstairs is just... It's no one. It's not needed
1: exactly. And also thinking about you know food needs to travel. Yeah, it's gonna sit. Who knows what's gonna like happen on the way? Twenty minutes, thirty minutes. Yeah. So it needs to. You know, we need to make sure that the menu is designed for what it's doing and kind of you know who's eating it, where they're eating it, what the transport is gonna be like. So it becomes you know you set limitations for yourself, and then you get to be creative within those limitations.
2: I mean, it's interesting to see where restaurants and restaurants as brands, and we talk about this a bit, of just, like, redefining the box. Like, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a restaurant? And being able to work within a parameter, and I don't think there's one way that is... You know, you can obviously go to the four-star, white linen, things like that, but if you're not going to go to the high-end fancy dining, there's no set rules anymore about what it means to put up good food and, and how to work within the box. And so how do you see you know, what's next really for you guys? Like, do you see yourself staying here? Do you see yourself evolving it to standards across the nation, across the world? Like what, what would you like to see your food go in the next few years?
1: Uh, I mean, we love the partnership. We've received a ton of support. Yeah. We have creative control here. Um, you know, nobody from the brand is telling us what to make, how to cook it. You know, they're supportive. They support us, you know, refine our business practices, Mm -hmm. they support us in our sourcing. So, you know, we, you know, we're, we're very happy here, but, you know, we're always looking, you know, potentially to do our own project, you know, to open another restaurant that's ours. That's definitely in the cards at some point. Sure. Um, you know, we are learning about hotels and hospitality, and we've always had an interest kind of in being able to curate the full experience. I think, you know, part of the reason why Alma downtown would sometimes rub people the wrong ways that they were getting, you know, very refined food in a very unrefined setting where, you know, it wasn't peaceful. You weren't able to create the conditions that some of the other uh, more ambitious restaurants were able to do where you can kind of control the experience of the guests from when they walk through the door to when they sit down to how they get there to how they're greeted. You know, we just didn't have those luxuries. And I think that, like, that kind of dichotomy... Would, would make people raise an eyebrow for sure, sure especially at the price
2: point of course it's one thing to in theory go like I'm going to downtown LA to go to a high end restaurant and if you're not if you don't have the wherewithal of what that really means yeah. to, be, to understand that experience that it's not going to Beverly Hills right. it's not going to yeah. a spot and where you might walk out and see not a desirable setting after you go to a certain price point meal.
1: Or on the way in, you know. Like, yeah, or the way in,
2: you go, oh, it's like I wanted the a, a complete white glove lifestyle service. Right.
1: Well, and, and, you know, you might come in, you might have an experience or an encounter on your way in that stresses you out or clouds sure. your judgment, or, you know, like parking is a real pain in the ass. I mean, that corner
2: right there is not great.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, you, there's all these other things that are going to affect your mood and how you feel. And that's, you know, that plays a huge role into the enjoyment of a meal so um, you know I think that being able to have more control over someone's experience not just the food but like you know the entire lead up to them eating if you really are looking at the highest end restaurants, that's yeah. where the focus is. You know, like Noma is moving outside of Copenhagen sure. into you know a fully curated experience. Which, by the
2: way, going to Noma originally is the most like serene, idyllic, like waterfront it's thing. Like, but for them, it's like no, we want the whole environment. Exactly.
1: You know, they want you know they want you to be in the frame of mind that they want you to be in, and like you know you look at Favakin and. You know how he's able to just curate this experience that puts you in the right frame of mind to be able to experience things that might be new or might be confrontational or might be things that, you know, bend your kind of concept of what deliciousness is. And, you know, f- people's frame of minds are so important into how, Absolutely. you know, in their willingness to go down that journey with you.
2: Um, awesome. Well, listen, I appreciate you giving the time. One last question. It's not been the straightest path but n- no path to success ever is do you feel good about the journey and where you're going next
1: i mean i think that we you know we do everything that we do with a lot of integrity mm-hmm. and we take care of our staff and we take care of the farmers that we work with and you know to me no financial success is worth it unless you're able to have roots in the community and to you know leave your like leave at least your area of control a little bit better than you found it and so you know all the failures and all the headaches and heartaches you know they were worth it because we you know our intention was always to you know to create something new to share something we love with people and to you know interact with our world um with as much integrity as possible so you know being able to do that is a blessing and and, you know we're We're so lucky not to have to make those compromises that you often have to make.
2: Awesome. Well, Chef, congrats. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Really awesome. You know, awesome just to see you doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we feel lucky, honestly, every day to be able to cook the food that we want to cook, to have the team around us that we want to have, and at this point now to have so many more people and such a more diverse type of person that's going to experience what we do.
3: Awesome.
2: Well, thank you so much. Thank you to The Standard for letting us come and hang out in the comments room. For sure. Uh, we got another musical break coming up, and then we have some live music here on Snacky Tunes, live on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. man that song is so good smoothed out summer songs we uh <laughs> thank you once again to ben who made us the uh shakespeare's sister shots that was no joke that was no joke those those jerk bitters they got yeah. oh man I never,
5: I never heard of that before i want to get into that
2: uh jamaican bitters well i'm looking at four <laughs> proud fathers of their new baby is an album a girl or it's a girl right Right. Sure. Sure. I think this, yeah. Yeah. So six yeah. days old. Have you guys slept? How's she doing? She all right? She crying a lot? Keeps us up at
5: night. Yeah. Um, just give her a little whiskey every night, and then she goes right out.
2: Yeah. Um. <laughs> so limits of desires out. Super excited. How do you guys feel about it? I feel great. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. We spent a lot of time on it, but it was worth it, and I don't know. We're really proud of it.
2: Um. What's it like to uh? Sit down and write an album these days, and put it out in the crazy world that is the music industry.
5: It's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. It's like something like a release date is such a weird thing now because the album's streaming a week before. Right. People have stolen it. You know, a couple weeks before that. So.
2: Oh really? Was like, were you Were you guys hacked?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it only it got leaked like maybe two weeks before, which is pretty damn good. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good. too bad. Yeah, no, that's about as bet the best you can hope for. So, um,
2: how I- does it feel to see a leak of your album? Cool. Yeah.
5: Because people care enough that they're they're steal looking for it. it. Yeah. yeah. It's fine, you know. I I think everybody steals music. It's it's just the reality of things. You pay for what you can afford. So yeah. Everybody that hears our band is you know. We're lucky for them to check it out. So
2: give us a quick history of the band. How'd you guys all meet? Ryan and I are from Long
5: Island. Strong Island. Yeah. And hey, we're hey. friends from back then.
2: Nice run in the uh, cup this year.
5: First round. Not bad. Oh, the Islanders. Yeah. 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 The soon-to-be Brooklyn Islanders. No. Did that got nixed?
2: It's not Brooklyn. They're staying... Lo- the, yeah. They're New- staying Long Island. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. New York Islanders. Anyway. So you guys <laughs> met in Long Island.
5: Yeah, and then Jeff and Juan are friends from college, and then we kind of buddied up and started the band.
3: Supergroup?
2: Yeah. And what year was that? 2009. Okay, so it's been, it's been a minute. Yeah. It's been yeah. a minute. Four years, you guys still all friends? Yeah.
5: Uh-huh. Tor, Tor will make every makes everybody crazy, but then we chill out for a week and become
2: friends again. That's because Tor isn't natural. Like, Toro is no. the most unnatural... We're going to put you in a van, we're going to give you no sleep, and it's like... Lots of stress. Lots of stress.
5: Yeah, everybody has had their meltdowns, so just try to to manage them.
2: I wouldn't trust a a guy or a girl in a band on a tour who didn't have a meltdown, because then you're like, oh, this person's fucking crazy, and they're Actually,
5: this guy, Ryan, I can't... Maybe Ryan hasn't had a meltdown. Really? He's a real even keel. I guess not. I guess I'm totally nuts. Because when you're acting like a nut... You just look at Ryan; he's very sensible and calm, <laughs> and then you feel bad about yourself.
2: What's uh What's the food sitch on the uh, on the road? We
5: don't play around; we eat real well. Really, we don't, we don't eat crap. We're we're super into Yelp, and like we'll when we're on like a long drive, we we plot out all the cities that are on the route, and we'll call an order in in advance and pick it up on the way. Oh, you're no
2: joke. Yeah, yeah, we're not eating. You try not to do crap. this, you know, gas station. Shit. The 99-cent the yeah. burrito? Yeah, exactly. I mean,
5: because really, when you're on a 10-hour drive, the only thing to look forward to is something good to
2: eat. So. What's, uh, what's some of your favorite places? Like cities
5: or restaurants? Hit me with both. Um, we've had really good luck in Phoenix.
2: Have you gone to America's Best Tacos near the airport?
5: No, but I want to.
2: Uh, we'll, we'll trade info. They do this carne asada, and they just put it in eight different types of, like, Whoa. wraps.
5: That sounds really
2: good. We yeah. have to do
5: that. We went to this place called Fez, which is like a sandwich
2: joint, and Triple
5: H from WWF was there.
2: Oh yeah, Fez in Phoenix.
5: Yeah, yeah.
2: One. Some other band was on the show talking about Fez.
5: That's crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's you know, I you know, I think it's uh, I think there are just communication between bands. I mean, look, you're all looking for good food at a certain price yeah. point in certain towns. Yeah, you're going to come across the same thing.
5: It's true that yeah, that place has been a go-to. Um, what was the name of that diner we ate at in Denver? Oh, something with uh, an S. I wish I knew the uh, name. That food was yeah. delicious. Really good fried chicken.
2: Um, you guys, Anyway, all right. Let's, so let's see. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll. I'll look it up. We'll see if we can find it. You said yeah. S Diner, Colorado. We'll, we'll find it. Yeah. Is it in Denver. All right. We'll see if we can find a thing. So, uh, you, you guys gonna rip a song movie? for us? Yeah, let's do it. What song are you playing first? The song is called No Stranger. All right. Here we go. Small Black, New Dads of the new album, The Little Baby Girl, No Strangers Here on Snacky Tunes. It's a summer jam. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. That's a, a straight-up summer jam. So what's the writing process for you guys? Is, uh, you know, I heard you when you guys were warming up before the show started, there was definitely a little bit of jam going on. You guys jam it out, and then you uh, figure out it's the songs really, from there? We
3: do some jamming.
5: Yeah? It's really a different song to song. Um, yeah, some are from jams. Some are from a song somebody brings to the band, and then we kind of rework around all the different elements. Um I think for this record, songs didn't really become contenders for the record until they had a hook that we thought was good and that we l- we latched on to. So I think that was the, the main criteria as far as how we followed through and finished things.
2: When I think one of the things that I like now or when you can definitely tell that a band wrote an album and not just a single. And you guys put out an actual album. So what's it like when you're structuring not just going for one song, but a whole start to finish and placement and things like that. I just was reading about um, the Breeders' 20th, 20th anniversary, The Last flash, and they're like talking about song placement and structure and the way it goes, and I feel that that's a lost art.
5: Yeah, um... I would say with this record, like, Free at Dawn, the first track, was definitely designed as an intro track, and the last track, Outskirts, is, um... definitely was always designed to be the ending. So, um... We had that in mind, and then I think the rest things start to, as you as you get closer with the mix, they start to really show their head as to where they belong in the record and what role they serve. You know, there's a couple songs that we cut from the record that I think are really good that just weren't, you know, they didn't serve the proper role in the record.
2: And do those become seven inches, or what do you do with those? Um, I guess we're kind of we just put the record out,
5: so we're still figuring out what to do. But yeah, seven inches are great. EPs, you know, it's it's kind of what...
2: You know, you got to respect Record Store Day for, I think, breathing life back into the 7-inch and making it yeah. like a new commodity. Mm-hmm. I feel for a few years uh, that was not a thing. And, you know, the digital download or, like, the free song, but there's something nice about having it be tangible, even if it's 200 copies and you, re- you release it online. No, I,
5: I love 7 inches. I think that's probably the music form I buy the most just because it's five or six bucks, it's a nice way to support the band. You get the cool art. I, I mean, I like the general size of a 7-inch. It looks great. And I don't know. It's usually got some track that's not as easy to find on the net. Yeah? On the B-side. Do yeah. you
2: find that people aren't ripping 7 inches as much as they are albums? I mean, they do. I mean, everything
5: eventually ends up on YouTube. But um, I think it's sometimes harder to find, like, that nice MP3 or something that you want to listen to.
2: Yeah. What's your most uh, prized 7-inch?
5: Um... Yeah, Juan's yeah. brother is like a like a deep, '80s DJ. So, <laughs> musical youth.
4: Yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah. I'm an elder Barge, Seven Inch. Wow. Past the, past the duchy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's the, really? The that's great. That's the summer jam.
2: That's like oh yeah. The alt- there's your dub right there. Yeah. That's Pop, I mean. but the,
5: the jam, kid vocal. When you can get away with it, is really great.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of fun. I also like playing Seven Inch. I mean, DJing is fun. Yeah. I no. usually just bring out the computer and do the whole Serato thing. But the seven inch thing is fun. You really work it. Especially yeah. with, you know, those are 2-3 minute songs and you're you're sweating and
5: You better have those records organized or you're going to be playing some trash.
2: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> nothing is nothing is uh shorter than when you don't have the next song queued up or longer than when you played the wrong song. <laughs> yeah, no. You can't Ouch. get Yeah, you can't get out of a the seven. There's no yeah, like there's no... drag and drop a new song. Nah.
5: No, you gotta let, you gotta let that bomb play out.
2: Now, are you guys doing any barbecues this summer? Are you guys cooking or? Playing Juan, any barbecue? Juan
5: is the is the guy. He's a deep barbecue. Juan, what you got? Uh, he's
2: well, a, he's I'm, our
6: foodie guy. He's the go to. I'm, I'm from Argentina, so we have uh, asado down there. It's oh yeah, very very different style than That's here. That's like a big flame. That's yeah. The, yeah. And it's every house has a, basically like a clay giant barbecue built into the backyard. It's. They, there's a joke in Argentina that the, every house starts with the barbecue and then builds outward from there.
2: Well, we got the barbecue, and <laughs> we're thinking about building a house around it, right?
6: That's pretty much Argentina, and it's just incredible, the, the meat quality. It's lean but very flavorful down there, and the cows are very healthy, just incredible food. And produce, it's kind of like anything that you would have to go out of your way to get here, organic. It's just kind of regular there, uh. so that's kind of the best because you, you don't feel like you're doing gourmet cooking. You're just doing regular cooking, but it's like... Cook. Well, there was a
2: time when regular cooking was just gourmet. Cooking. Exactly,
6: yeah. exactly. What's your? Is that your?
2: I mean, what are do you doing, Brooklyn? Because I am assuming
6: I would love to. I've been trying to think about importing the grill. It's like a V-shaped yeah. grill because it catches the fat, doesn't yeah. let the fat drip and smoke up into the meat. Uh, so I'm thinking about importing one of those and building one. We're also talking about doing a smoker in the backyard this summer,
2: smoking some whole chickens.
5: That's nice. Yeah, yeah. we're not we're not playing around. No, we were into it. It's, yeah. I, I think the
2: uh, backyard. Brooklyn barbecue scene. Yeah, no, no, people don't come here to play.
6: No, no, no. You know, it's everyone's a foodie now. You better not show you with some pre-made yeah. patties. Oh no! Oh yeah, exactly. Party. Like
2: I was in the bodega yesterday and I saw those uh, pre-wrapped cheeseburgers, and oh, I was like, God. "Who still? Does it buys unnecessary, those? unnecessary, unnecessary." All right, enough about food. Let's let's do <laughs> let's do another song. <laughs> we'll talk about food all day. Uh, what do we got next?
5: The song's called Sophie.
2: Okay, here we go. Uh, Small black Sophie here uh, live on Snacky Tunes. So how would you best describe your music?
5: Oh, man. I'm kidding. I'm not going to ask you music questions like that. Let's get (laughs) back to the food.
2: Um, So what is your favorite uh, time of the year to eat? Are you guys barbecue men, or are you guys guys like winter soup dudes or things like that? Come Um, on in. You're the food guy. Don't stand in the corner. Yeah. Just over there. I just like to eat fried chicken all the time. You know, there was a good article in the Times last week. About how to fry chicken and how, if it's not deep fried, it's not that bad for you. If which, it's
6: not deep fried, it's not that like, bad for you? I thought if you had the temperature hot enough, the fat didn't get in. Yeah. And it's kind of okay. It's
2: kind of okay. Like, the deep fried stuff that you get at KFC, that's that's bad for that's you. That's bad. But, the, like, times. but <laughs> the cast iron two-inch skillet oh, okay. stuff is not as bad for you. And I'm just going to... And guess what? If I read that wrong, I'm just going to believe that it's not that yeah. valid that. for me. Keep telling me that. Too. Right? Keep
5: telling me that.
6: Sounds good so thoughts. we learned
2: today that Jamaican bitters are awesome and fried chicken is a health food. It's
6: a health food. <laughs> it's a health food. It's absolutely health food. I read the other day that I was looking for recipes to make up pudding, like yeah. caramel pudding. And, and this one was like, this is really healthy. Low in fat, high in calcium and protein. I was like, all right. Yeah. I'll just make some caramel pudding. <laughs> you know, look, I, th- <laughs> <Why not?
2: laughs> I think the biggest issue is processed food. Yeah, I think if absolutely. you can just eat good ingredients, like okay, this pizza that we're eating—probably not every day—but essentially it's just bread and sauce and good cheese. Good cheese. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I, I'm reading this uh, Joseph Mitchell book, and this one section is all about the Fulton Fish Market, and uh, there's this big section that that he hangs out with this 93 year old guy who's pretty much only eaten seafood his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes into this big... And it's, this is, like, in the 40s, and he goes off on, like, bread you'd get at the supermarket or whatever you got it there, and said so he would never eat it, yeah. and that it's trash. And this guy seemed like was the first person that was completely against processed foods, and I think he lived to, like, be 100, just...
6: Yeah, I, it's it's really, a, everything now is just going back to the way things were yeah. before all the process. Trying things. to. Or trying to, like, the whole, like, dry-aged steak thing. It's like every steak used to be dry-aged. Yeah. yeah. That was the way you did it, and now it's, like, the special thing. We actually dry-age our own steaks at home, too, which is Are nice. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. We mess with that. We've definitely done that. <laughs> a couple a, of porterhouses. What's long as you let a steak go? I just go, like, two or three days tops. Okay. And then it starts to dry out. And then I, I do the Heston Blumenthal method of just, like... The hot sear. sear 15 seconds flip 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 for two minutes done really flip every 15 seconds it never lets either side cool down so it builds a nice crust gets it nice and medium
2: i usually just do like a two minute two minute you know carlo totally at blanca do. does an 85 day what?
6: steak get out Whoa. of here
2: 85 it's that it's like it's, <laughs> it's like, like, a, like
6: jerky by the end but it's like no it's got like no. a
2: funky blue cheese moldy Ooh, delicious Yeah.
6: Just cut that right off. You
2: can't be afraid of the funk in both music and steak, you know? No, certainly not. So what's the plans for you guys? Tour coming?
6: Yeah, we start tour
5: on May 29th in Boston, and then we come back and wrap up in New York at Music Hall of Williamsburg on the 30th of June.
2: Oh, so you guys are out for a month. Yeah, and then we'll be out again. So what, you going north and around? Circle, yeah. Circle. One of my favorite burrito places is up in Boston. You guys go to Anna's Taqueria?
6: Ooh, oh, I I have been there. It's incredible. The yeah. burrito there. I had it like a decade ago, so I don't know if it's, it's the still same. the same, but oh my God. Do you know the Soul Clap guys? Yeah. Okay, I'm good friends with Charlie from growing up. Yeah. Family friends, so we used to go there.
2: Oh man, it's up good. In Boston. That was like the first Mission-style, like steamed cheese type of burrito quesadilla so thing good. I've ever had. Go there. Yeah, we should. Yeah, that's really on share. the list. Yeah. So you guys are just doing all North America? You guys dip into Canada? Yeah.
5: Yeah, we're doing Mo- Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. Toronto's got great food,
6: and Montreal, too.
2: montreals that's my hometown. It's my dad's from. Where Where's Joe
6: Beef at? Is. is that in Montreal? Montreal, yeah. do call him to even get a restaurant. I know, right? Seriously. would be amazing. What, yo, our band loves your restaurant. Our <laughs> band loves your <a> restaurant. <laughs> if so you're like, listening right now, Joe Beef, guys, will definitely come check it out. Just
2: go to Schwartz's or go to Fairmont Bagels or things like that. Just get some of that dirty poutine. Yeah. Right? Totally. Uh, so I want to thank you guys coming on. What's all the nuts and bolts? working people by the album?
5: Um, just you can just get it at our website small dash black dot com, or just grab it from Jag Jaguar or iTunes, Amazon. It's on all all those various places.
2: And can people the follow city? the tour on Twitter, Instagram? What are those?
5: Yeah, um, like it's on Facebook. Facebook. It's pretty easy to find if you just Google Small Black. uh Small BLK is the t- is the Twitter handle. So
2: and where's the name from?
5: Uh. I moved to Portland on a whim once, and I was living in this really sort of screwed up house, and there was a pack of raccoons that lived in the attic. Okay. And we named them all, and one of them was named Small Black, and that's who we named. That was the name of the band.
2: Interesting. Well, shout out to uh, Lissa. Lissa, what, what do you got? Come with- Tumblr, Tumblr, Tumblr. Uh, Tumblr. Oh, the Tumblr.
5: Tumblr. Yeah, smallblack.tumblr.com. I we, love Tumblr. Yeah,
2: Tumblr. Which just yeah. got bought by Yahoo today for a yeah. billion dollars. Really?
6: Wow. <laughs> A lot. That's a lot. of money. Yeah. That is, that's really a way to make money.
2: I, I guarantee you Tumblr's sabering champagne bottles right now. I think that's hey what you Tumblr, do. Tumblr, guys. We love you guys. I think that's what happens when you sell for like a billion. I think that's what Instagram did. They just saber They get those like big, comically sized Magnums. The
6: Shandon, yeah. like the Magnum. Like, yes, the yeah, Shandon.
2: Yeah. Which are crazy because they're like $100,000. It's yeah. like a hundred, I don't know. We,
6: we drink that sometimes after shows. Oh, yeah? It's kind of novelty, like human-sized bottle. And just saber it with one of the guitars?
2: Yeah. Sure. Awesome. Alright, so what's the last song we're going to get?
5: We're going to do "All These Despicable Dogs.
2: Awesome. Well, Small Black, Ben, everybody, thank you so much. We will be off next week because we will be enjoying a day of barbecue. No
5: Woo. doubt. No
2: doubt. Uh, you guys got barbecue plans for Memorial Day?
5: Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: We're working on it. Oh, you're working on it. We're working, on it. <laughs> working on it. Start aging those. Hey, man, do we get some funky steaks for next... For next steak Monday, steak and shrimp. Yeah. That's I'll what do we're the eighty do. day, eighty, <laughs>
6: eighty-five. Eighty-five day. I know, right? That's that's really really that's bold. Dedication. Yeah,
2: I it scares me, but obviously I I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Small black. Snacking tunes scene, two weeks. Thanks, guys.
4: Selling love, wilder than the worst one, wilder than the one I know. Lost in the wood on another hunt And they rattle, and they rattle Do it without me, do it when I'm gone Right as I hunt you, right as you run, you die